Chapter 14 of The Tenant of Windfield Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ana Sofia Simão de Portugal. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Chapter 14. Next morning, I bethought me, I too had business at L. So I mounted my horse and set forth on the expedition soon after breakfast. It was a dull, drizzly day. But that was no matter. It was all the more suitable to my frame of mind. It was likely to be a lonely journey, for it was no market day, and the road I traversed was little frequented at any other time. But that suited me all the better, too. As I trotted along, however, chewing the cud of bitter fancies, I heard another horse at no great distance behind me. But I never conjectured who the rider might be, or troubled my head about him, till, on slackening my pace to ascend a gentle acclivity, or rather, suffering my horse to slacken his pace into a lazy walk, for, wrapped in my own reflections, I was letting it jog on as leisurely as he thought proper. I lost ground, and my fellow traveller overtook me. He accosted me by name, for it was no stranger, it was Mr. Lawrence. Instantly, the fingers of my whip hand tingled, and grasped their charge with convulsive energy. But I restrained the impulse, and answering his solution with a nod, attempted to push on. But he pushed on beside me, and began to talk about the weather and the crops. I gave the briefest possible answers to his queries and observations, and fell back. He fell back, too, and asked if my horse was lame. I replied with a look, at which he placidly smiled. I was as much astonished and exasperated at this singular pertinacy and imperturbable assurance on his part. I had thought circumstances of our last meeting would have left such an impression on his mind as to render him cold and distant ever after. Instead of that, he appeared not only to have forgotten all former offences, but to be impenetrable to all present uncivilities. Formerly, the slightest hint, or mere fancied coolness in tone or glance, had sufficed to repulse him. Now, positive rudeness could not drive him away. Had he heard of my disappointment, and was he come to witness the result and triumph in my despair? I grasped my whip with more determined energy than before, but still forbore to raise it and rode on in silence, waiting for some more tangible cause of offence before I opened the floodgates of my soul and poured out the damned-up fury that was foaming and swelling within. Markham, said he, in his usual quiet tone, why do we quarrel with your friends because you have been disappointed in one quarter? You would have found your hopes defeated, but how am I to blame for it? I warned you beforehand, you know, but you would not. He said no more, for, impelled by some fiend at my elbow, I had seized my whip by the small end and, swift and sudden as a flash of lightning, brought the other down upon his head. It was not without a feeling of savage satisfaction that I beheld the instant deadly paler that overspread his face and few red drops that trickled down his forehead while he reeled a moment in the saddle and then fell backward to the ground. The pony, surprised to be so strange or relieved of its burden, started and capered and kicked a little and then made us use of its freedom to go and crop the grass of the edge bank, 
while its master lay as still in silence as a corpse. As I killed him, an icy hand seemed to grasp my heart and check its pulsations as I bent over him, gazing with breathless intensity upon the ghastly, upturned figure. But no, he moved his eyelids and uttered a slight groan. I breathed again. He was only stunned by the fall. It served him right. It would teach him better manners in future. Should I help him to his horse? No. For any other combination of offences I would, but these were too unpardonable. He might mount in himself if he liked. In a while already he was beginning to steer and look about him, and there it was for him, quietly browsing on the roadside. So with a muttered execration I left the fellow to his fate and clapping spurs to my own horse, galloped away, excited by a combination of feeling it would not be easy to analyze, and perhaps, if I did so, the result would not be very creditable to my disposition, for I am not sure that the species of exultation in what I had done was not one principal concomitant. Shortly, however, the effervescence began to abate, and not many minutes elapsed before I had turned and gone back to look after the fate of my victim. It was no general's impulse, no kind relenting that led me to this, nor even fear of what might be the consequences to myself if I finished my assault upon the squire by leaving him thus neglected and exposed to further injury. It was simply the voice of conscience, and I took great credit to myself for attending so promptly to its dictates, and judging the merit of the deed by the sacrifice I caused, I was not far wrong. Mr. Lawrence and his pony had both altered their positions in some degree. The pony had wandered eight or ten yards further away, and he had managed, somehow, to remove himself from the middle of the road. I found him seated in a recumbent position on the bank, looking very white and sickly still, and holding his cambric handkerchief, now more red than white, to his head. It must have been a powerful blow but half the credit, or the blame of it, if you please, must be attributed to the whip, which was garnished with a massive horse's head of plated metal. The grass, being sodden with rain, afforded the young gentleman a rather inhospitable couch. His clothes were considerably bemered, and his hat was rolling in the mud on the other side of the road. But his thoughts seemed chiefly bent upon his pony, on which he was wistfully gazing half in excellent anxiety and half in hopeless abandonment to his fate. I dismounted, however, and having fastened my own animal to the nearest tree, first picked up his hat, intending to clap it on his head. But either he considered his head unfit for a hat, or the head in its present conditions unfit for his head, for shrinking away the one, he took the other from my hand and scornfully cast it aside. It's good enough for you, I muttered. My next good office was to catch his pony and bring it to him, which was soon accomplished, for the beast was quiet enough in the main, and only once and flirted a trifle till I got hold of the bridle. But then I must see him in the saddle. Here, you fellow, scoundrel, dog, give me your hand, and I'll help you to mount. No, he turned from me in disgust. I attempted to take him by the arm. He shrunk away as if there had been contamination in my touch. What, you won't? Well, you may sit there till doomsday for all I care, but I suppose you don't want to look all the blood in your body. 
I'll just condescend to bind that up for you. Let me alone, if you please. Hm. With all my heart, you may go to the devil if you choose, and say I sent you. But before I abandoned him to his fate, I flung his pony's bridle over a stack in the edge, and threw him my handkerchief, as his own was now saturated with blood. He took it and cast it back to me, with abhorrence and contempt, with all the strength he could master. It wanted but this to fill the measures of his offences. With execrations, not loud but deep, I left him to live or die as he could, well satisfied that I had done my duty in attempting to save him, but forgetting how I had erred in bringing him into such a condition, and how insultingly my after-services had been offered, and sullenly prepared to meet the consequences if it should choose to say I had attempted to murder him which I thought not unlikely, as it seemed probable he was actuated by such spiteful motives in so perseveringly refusing my assistance. Having remounted my horse, I just looked back to see how he was getting on before I rode away. He had risen from the ground, and, grasping his pony's mane, was attempting to resume his seat in the saddle, but scarcely had he put his foot in stirrup when a sickness or dizziness seemed to overpower him. He leant forward a moment, with his head drooped on the animal's back, and then made one more effort, which, proving ineffectual, he sank back on the bank where I left him, reposing his head on the woozy turf, and to all appearance as calmly reclining as if he had been taking his rest on his sofa at home. I ought to have helped him in spite of myself, to have bound up the wound he was unable to staunch, and insisted upon getting him on his horse and seeing him safe home. But, besides my bitter indignation against himself, there was a question what to say to his servants, and what to my own family. Either I should have to acknowledge the deed, which should set me down as a madman unless I acknowledged the motive too, and that seemed impossible, or I must get up a lie, which seemed equally out of the question especially as Mr. Lawrence would probably reveal the whole truth, and thereby bring me to tenfold disgrace, unless I were villain enough, presuming on the absence of witness to persist in my own version of the case, and made him out a still greater scoundrel than he was. No, he had only received a cut above the temple, and perhaps a few bruises from the fall or the hoofs of his own pony. That could not kill him if he lay there after day and, if he could not help himself, surely someone would be coming by. It would be impossible that the whole day should pass and no one traverse the road but ourselves. As for what he might choose to say hereafter, I would take my chances about it. If he told lies, I would contradict him. If he told the truth, I would bear it as best as I could. I was not obliged to enter into explanations further than I thought proper. Perhaps he might choose to be silent on the subject, for fear arising inquiries as to the cause of the quarrel, and drawing the public attention to his connection with Mrs. Graham, which, whether for her sake or his own, he seemed so very desirous to conceal. Thus reasoning, I trotted away to the town, where I duly transacted my business and performed various little commissions for my mother and Rose, with very laudable exactitude, considering the different circumstances of the case. In returning home, I was troubled with sundry misgivings about the unfortunate Lawrence. The question, what if I should find him lying still on the damp earth, fairly dying of cold and exhaustion, 
or already stark and chill, thrust itself most unpleasantly upon my mind, and the appalling possibility pictured itself with painful vividness to my imagination as I approached the spot where I had left him. But no, thank heaven, both man and horse were gone, and nothing was left to witness against me but two objects, unpleasant enough in themselves to be sure, and presently a very ugly, not to say murderous appearance. In one place, the hat saturated with rain and coated with mud, intended and broken above the brim by that villainous white handle. In another, the crimson handkerchief, soaking in a deeply tinctured pool of water, for much rain had fallen in the interim. Bad news flies fast. It was hardly four o'clock when I got home, but my mother gravely accosted me with, Oh, Gilbert, such an accident! Rose has been shopping in the village, and she's heard that Mr. Lawrence has been thrown from his horse and brought home dying. This shocked me a trifle, as you may suppose, but I was comforted to hear that he had frightfully fractured his skull and broken a leg. For, assured of the falsehood of this, I trusted the rest of the story was equally exaggerated. And when I heard my mother and sisters so feelingly deploring his condition, I had considerable difficulty in preventing myself from telling them the real extent of the injuries, as far as I knew them. You must go and see him tomorrow, said my mother. Or today, suggested Rose. There's plenty of time, and you can have the pony as your horse is tired. Won't you, Gilbert, as soon as you've had something to eat? No, no. How can I tell that it isn't all a false report? It's highly in... Oh, I'm sure it isn't, for the village is all alive about it, and I saw two people that had seen others that had seen the man that found him. That sounds far-fetched, but it isn't so when you think of it. Well, but Loris is a good rider. It is not likely he would fall from his horse at all. And if he did, it is highly improbable he would break his bones in that way. It must be a gross exaggeration, at least. No, but horse kicked him, or something. What? His quiet little pony. How do you know it was that? He seldom rides any other. At any rate, said my mother, you will call tomorrow. Whether it be true or false, exaggerated or otherwise, we shall like to know how he is. Fergus may go. Why not you? He has more time. I am busy just now. Oh, but Gilbert, how can you be so composed about it? You won't mind business for an hour or two in a case of this sort, when your friend is at the point of death. He is not, I tell you. For anything you know, he may be. You can tell till you have seen him. At all events, he must have met with some terrible accident, and you ought to see him. You'll take it very unkind if you don't. Confound it, I can't. He and I have not been on good terms of late. Oh, my dear boy, surely, surely we are not so unforgiving as to carry our little differences to such a length as... Little differences indeed, I muttered. Well, but only remember the occasion. Think how... Well, well, don't bother me now. I'll see about it, I replied. And my thing about it was to send Fergus next morning, with my mother's compliments, to make the requisite inquiries. For, of course, my going was out of the question, or sending a message either. He brought back intelligence that the young squire was laid up under complicated evils of a broken head and certain contusions. 
occasioned by a fall, of which he did not trouble himself to relate the particulars and subsequent misconduct of his horse, and a severe cold, the consequence of lying on the wet ground in the rain. But there were no broken bones and no immediate prospects of dissolution. It was evident then that for Mrs. Graham's sake it was not his intention to criminate me. End of chapter 14